0: Don't lose your sense of humour because that is sometimes the thing that will keep you in best stead in a hot spot. But most of all, really try and f- focus on well-being because it's really important that you're resilient. The thing that that can best protect you is emotional resilience.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the student lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This podcast is brought to you by Feed Ignite. Welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast. My name is Stephanie and I am an LLB student at Birkbeck, University of London. Today I'm joined by Ashkan Kandy, Managing Partner and Head of Commercial Disputes at Kande. Candy is a leading law firm that specializes in high-value commercial disputes. Ashkan will be talking to us about his career journey, his thoughts on the legal industry, as well as sharing advice on how aspiring lawyers can stand out in their applications and interviews, so make sure you stick around for that. Welcome to the Student Lawyer Ashkan. It's great to have you here.
0: Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you for the kind invite.
1: Well, thank you for joining us. Um, I'm going to just get straight into the question because um, we've got quite a lot to ask you. Um, so my first question is: Why did you choose um, a career in commercial litigation?
0: Well, I suppose it it started because I didn't know what to study at university, and so I chose law, and then having studied, or have in the middle of doing my LLB, I thought that I should do articles, as they were called back then, and I thought that would be a springboard to a future career, and it was as simple as that, and then when I went into a law firm, um, I did my training contracts at firm called, it was called Nicholson Graham and Jones. It's now, uh, L. Gates, the English office of Kernel Gates International Law Firm. But I just found that actually the thing that interested me was commercial litigation. And I had thought that I would be more interested in the corporate work, the mergers and acquisitions. And I just, I didn't find it interesting. I found the deals interesting. I thought, oh, I'd love to do the deals. But for me personally, I found that there was an absence of real sort of rigorous intellectual analysis. And I liked the adversarial part of commercial litigation where you've got people fighting, you've got cut and thrust, and you've got people really setting out their stalls in accordance with the law uh, across a huge wide range of cases, Different sexes and different areas, and so it was. It was always going to be commercial litigation for me, and I would. Uh, I, you know, there was. An, I wasn't going to do property law. I wasn't going to be um, a real estate lawyer. I would rather go and do something else and have done
1: that. So you are called to the bar as well, aren't you? How How come you didn't decide to go down the barrister route rather, than, and and go towards the and. Ah. Um,
0: well, I I was called to the bar quite late in my career, so I qualified in 1999, and then um, after we set up practice in Lincoln's Inn, I just thought I might as well. Why not? You know, yeah. another string to your bow. And yeah. so, um, but but what I what I didn't really want to do is practice as a barrister because uh, of the ability to um, engage with other people, and have a bigger team, and to be able to delegate. I mean, barristers can't delegate. I mean, they can a bit, and there's people devil, but you, you can't have, you don't normally have say 50 people working for one barrister. No, that's right. So it's unheard of, doesn't work. And I, I've always found that the whole commercial setup of chambers to just be bizarre. Um, you know, you're head of chambers, but you don't get a cut of any, anyone else's Earnings. In fact, you just—I mean—in a way, it's a bit of labor. It's a labor of love. You get the prestige of being head of chambers, and that's quite cool. But it's probably also like herding cats.
1: Yeah, I can imagine uh, it's very
0: different to what you do now. I think it's very different for me in a law firm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: So, as you said, you—you you qualified in nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. So you've obviously worked on. Like an enormous amount of cases in that time. What would you yeah. say is like the most interesting one that you've worked on, or most satisfying?
0: I, uh, I mean, the one that's really the, sort of the biggest case I've worked on that had, you know, everything was probably Peak Hotels. I mean, the re- the reason I've chosen, I, I, you know, I've liked that. I like that case is that um, first of all, the it was in relation to luxury, uber luxury hotels. You no, know, sometimes if you're having an argument over, you know, I don't know, some roof tiles or some construction element, it's just, it's kind of hard to get yourself interested in it. But you know, everyone loves the idea of a luxury hotel. And you know, this, this is a dispute, a joint venture dispute over the ownership and direction of this hotel group. And it was fascinating because the acquisition had been put together by a, A fraudster and we were acting for the company and um we had initially also acted for him but we we ceased acting for him when we sort of got the measure of him we continued acting for the company and he had unfortunately defrauded you know the great and the good who'd been brought into um maybe become stakeholders uh, one of them had guaranteed a loan, I think, for $35 million. Another one had put in another $30 million of his own cash into the deal. So we were effectively um, those stakeholders and were became effectively the people that we were trying to look after and the reason we were trying to fight the litigation. What was very interesting was, I mean, effectively it seemed... It seemed to me that both sides of the joint venture parties uh, were at fault. Um, but it was a fight to the death, and it involved litigation. I mean these days a lot of litigation is cross-border just because of that because of technology and that's how the way things work. But this was litigation where we were acting in Hong Kong, in London, New York, Singapore, and Australia all at the same time. And it was, I mean, you know, trying to sort out phone calls. You know, Australia came towards the end, but that, that really, that, you know, that was quite, that was quite tricky because um, there's only a certain time you can report to them. But um, it was just one of those cases that because of the characters involved, so one of the key characters, the guarantor, was eighty six one is one of the great founders, uh, uh, so and what that involved was, um, it sort of um, uh, it introduced me to the British Virgin Islands, um, where we've done a lot of work, and um, I'm also called there, um, to the bar there, and um, I actually think of all the offshore jurisdictions, it's the prettiest, Mm. um. And so it's really nice to, to, to uh, actually be able to go out there and work there.
1: Yeah, uh, I can imagine. Well, you, I mean, it sounds like you have worked on, you know, very exciting cases and in a very powerful um, area of law as well. I mean, I imagine every day when you wake up, you feel motivated and, and like ready to like go into action. But is there like something in particular that keeps you motivated?
0: Well, cash. Oh, you know, whenever I ask this to, you know, students, never, no one ever talks about the money. And I'm like, so why do I have the law? And I go, well, I know, what about money? Is that? And they're like, well, yeah, obviously. And I was like, well, why didn't you mention that? So, I mean, I'm not, you know, that is a motivator. Not necessarily, I suppose, cash for cash sake. Mm. I mean, for us, it, you know, with cash, what it allows us to do is to... One is to expand, recruit good people, invest in cases. And also, I. so yeah, so managing cash is important. I always love, and it, it has never changed, the thrill of getting a judgment and sitting there, you know, and even when, when I'm, if I'm looking at a, a draft reserve judgment or... Um, reading through it, always start at the beginning. I won't go to the end. I'll start at the beginning, go right through it, and you know, through 300 pages. And, write, yeah. oh, going? <laughs> um, and when you're in court and the judge is reading out their judgment, you're like, which way are they going? And you're like, yeah, that and all. And the judges do this. I think they, uh, they like to have a laugh. They like to sort of, for some j- judges anyway, create some drama. In, the, in when they're delivering their judgments, so I always get a buzz about that. I always get a buzz. So I think there is a buzz. You need. You, I think you need an interest in something that makes you go, "Yeah, I want to do this. I want to get out of bed. Uh, I want to help." You know, a lot of it's obligation. You know, I mean, unfortunately, I'm I'm, I'm managing partner. I'm still a servant. I, uh, you know, I'm my client's servant. If they say jump, I've got to jump.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess at the end
0: of the day, everybody's selling something, right? Yeah, but I mean, look, I mean, everyone's selling something, you're right. But I think sales, like my relationship with my tennis coach, I don't, you know, I don't go there and go, right, I've, I, I feel bad. I, I don't like the fact I'm paying you and we can't be friends because I'm paying you. It doesn't work like that. It's just like, well, you're, I, you know, he's, my tennis coach is a good friend of mine and I pay him. Because that's how he makes a living. I mean, it'd be stupid not to charge me for it. It'd be completely wrong. And I think it's the same really with, um, I don't really ever call it sales, but I suppose it is. Um, An accountant would describe your bills as your sales. I I always sort of think that what we do is we help, help people. Yeah. We monetize that. So we monetize our service. Interesting. So like a doctor, would you would you regard a doctor as selling? That that's really the sort of question. That's why I don't like the word sales because actually, yeah. you it's a doctor. I mean, all right, with the NHS, you might not be paying, but someone's going to be paying. The taxpayers paying. Yeah, and, that's uh, true.
1: That's a really good point. Very good point.
0: I think a lot of a lot of people are uh, feel embarrassed at trying to sell stuff, and I says, well, don't think about it as trying to sell to them, just think about how you can help them. Um, Yes, I think that's an extremely good point. I think that
1: you are kind of like you are in a way selling your service because at the end of the day, if if you've got something that you want to provide to your clients, as in like helping them, you want to be the one to provide this for them because you are the best. You have to let them know if if you're out there competing with a bunch like other law firms are also offering the
0: same thing. Yeah, no, you You know, I agree with that. I mean, ultimately, you are seeking to persuade them to choose you as opposed to someone else. But I think that the thing often to do is to talk to people and to listen. And I, I find it remarkable how many lawyers I, I meet. You just can't listen. They don't have the capacity to listen. And I think the more you can listen and pick up on people's issues Then you can respond, you can can think and respond, and actually you can formulate strategies for them. And it's that, that's how you add value. Mm. So someone says, uh, Oh, yeah, you know, we've got a loan book and um, it's in default. Um, It might be that you can think about a way of actually going from a loan to own situation and trading out that business that you acquire um that might be something I mean, it's just an example but it's just by keeping an open mind to things and um if people are in distress or in distress situation always re- retaining a bit of a positive attitude without wishing to um obviously mislead in any way but also uh, what I often see sometimes is just that people are take can take a bit of a negative attitude when actually you don't know what's going to happen. You don't necessarily know. So you've got to keep an open mind um, in a dispassionate way. Dispassionate in considering the advice, but not in delivering the message. I think it's important that we do engage with clients and, you know, we are emotional beings. And it's important that that there is that emotional connection. So soft skills are obviously very important to you. Yeah. I think they're fundamental. I don't really call them soft. No. That suggests that they're almost minor. Yeah. They are yeah. more important than the hard skills.
1: I think they're just oh. equally as important.
0: It would be fantastic. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if you, you don't know the law, if you don't know what you're talking about, um, but you've got, to, you've got to be able to listen, communicate, persuade and build trust. That, that if you build trust, you have a client for life. Fantastic! Yeah,
1: I read that you are very passionate about you know, well-being. Where where did that come from?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, look. So we produce, we manufacture advice. We don't, you know, we're not selling, uh, you know, engineering equipment. And so, what are we are our, we are the people. We are our staff. That's it. And so I don't know. I mean, um, some people, they will, if you had a very nice shop, say, if you had Louis Vuitton or something, you might have people that go in and dust the handbags. They look after their produce, what they're selling. And I, I take the same view with staff. I mean, they are the lifeblood of the firm and if someone is stressed and unhappy, and or depressed or anxious, they're we're not they're not, not going to perform as well as someone who is in a better place, and so and that I think is just common sense. So I do think there is um, I think litigation has changed so much in the past 20 years i mean 25 years when i I qualified what i said in 99 you know email external email was just starting in 99. you know when i was doing my training contract we'd send out letters a response like a week later you send another letter i mean now it's like 25 emails a day you know it can be full-on and so, uh, and I think people do get stressed. And I think it's really important that that's managed. And also that you put in place ways to help manage and alleviate that stress to avoid people having, uh, really, I mean, people do have, you know, people have breakdowns, don't they? I And uh, because they just can't cope. And sometimes... They are being asked to undertake a wholly unreasonable amount of work, which has got huge amounts of responsibility, and they're not being supported, so they get stressed and they feel physically unwell. Um, and that, I think, is negligent of uh, you know of the employer or the management, and it, it's something that actually I understand can occur but at least if you put in place, one, the ability to spot it, two, create an environment where people are encouraged to speak up, and three, a uh, have in place options so that they can speak to other people confidentially, be it in terms of counselling, and also in terms of attitudes. I mean, uh, so one of the things we've been doing at work is things like... Um, Alexander Technique, or you have an Alexander Technique teacher come in, and and a lot of that is uh, really about focusing on the importance of the body. Unfortunately, over time we've sort of become like hunched up apes behind computers, and our posture and everything just...
1: You get frozen
0: in this hunched over position. Yeah, it's really bad, and that creates problems with the neck, Mm -hmm. uh, and that then creates problems with the brain. It's all, you know, we're all connected, but sometimes we're just so in the zone that we forget about all of this. And I think that um, focusing on the body and the mind, uh, the importance of looking after that, does also make people think, well, OK, hang on a sec. I'm not, you know, I'm not a piece of furniture and I need to look after myself. And actually, you know what? I'm not going to take this shit that I'm getting from other people. Uh, and I shouldn't have to. Um And then it's like, actually, what you get from that person is a better, stronger person.
1: Yeah, refreshed, relaxed people wanting to turn I up. Do. To, to mean, a certain extent, like, you're encouraging people to feel relaxed. And it, I think that that switches people on. Like, it, it makes their brains come more alive and they're more open to things, I think.
0: I think so. I mean, you, you take... I mean, look, so... I don't, When I don't look at the staff, and I, I don't just look at their performance. I'm like, I, I, I'm interested in where they live, how they live, whether they're supported at home, you know, if they're in a single family situation, whether they've got adequate support for their children, how they're collecting their kids. You know, it, it's important for me as, it, you know, the idea that they're not able to go and collect their kid at the school gate at three, three o'clock, as a single parent that upsets me I mean that'd be tragic and it's like right okay well how can we how can we resolve that together because obviously you know the kid needs to be picked up it's a massive priority I mean what, what how do you prioritize that you've got the closing a 50 million deal and you've got a child at the school gates who's got to be collected and they're both equally important they're both you've got to manage them both yeah how would you manage something
1: like that for example? Like what, what things can you can you put in um, what what can you offer stuff like that I don't know
0: I think I think the only way around it is through a team approach I think uh, you know so so that people say right I've got to drop out of this someone says fine I'll pick it up yeah I mean that's particularly in respect of I think uh, um, I mean, you know it, it affects women you know I mean biggest issue that I think faces the profession, Is why we're one of the biggest issues, anyway. But why so few women um, leave the law, but so so many women leave the law uh, after they have children, and really trying to. I I think it's there is a wealth of talent out there, and I would, I personally love to tap into that, but I think that, and we are we have strategies in place to seek to do that, but somehow we need to communicate to all the women out there who have sort of left what they saw were boring or unfulfilling roles that and or that were just too much that stopped them from actually having a family or having family life and actually persuading them that actually there is an alternative way. But that involves them really working with others um, to achieve that. Yeah, yeah. There are ways of doing it. It's just a little bit of give and take. Yeah, and Um, I think, again, communications, like, you know, this whole lockdown has shown that actually you don't need to come in to the office all the time.
1: Yeah, like we we can break away from the conventional style of working. I guess this just is proving it. So when you are hiring junior lawyers, what qualities are you looking for? How can candidates stand out in CVs and interviews?
0: So, I mean, I'm trying to work out. I try personally to look at every CV. So, um, we have a, you know, committee as well, but I will, um, and so everyone else will look at them, but I will look at them and we might get, you know, large volume of CVs for, especially at the sort of junior end, get hundreds. So I don't spend a huge, amount of time on the letter hardly at all and I mean I think with the letter what people should be thinking is actually what do I really want to get across what are my five points I want to get across and just get across those five points or three points because normally most of the letters are oh I'd love to work at candy because and that they quote what we do and try and say oh but I'm like they're all they all say that. So I'm looking for something that's going to try and tell me something about the person that I'm not necessarily going to get from just looking at their CV. Now it might be, uh, you know, if someone got a first from, you know, came top of the top of the year at bar school or whatever, then obviously we'll fly with that. But I think that for me the hardest thing is when I look at CVs is I'm looking at them and I, I, I feel really bad because. I know that it's such an arbitrary way of one CV gets, goes left, the other CV goes right. And unfortunately, you know, most of the 2 two ones ones go to the right. Yet I know so many fantastic lawyers who've been incredibly successful um, who got two twos. Um, and Back in the old days, there were so many lawyers who got thirds. But now it's all changed, such a focus on academia, and I think that if you ha- are in that situation, really do use your, um, your covering email and or your CV to try and communicate why there's something else about you that makes you different to stand out from the crowd.
1: Such as like what I'm interested in and what you think is like that interesting thing.
0: Was it? Oh, too difficult? Well, okay. To so I remember, I, so I don't know. I'm just trying to think of an example. I, 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 I um, would often ask people, have they ever done anything commercial? And this wasn't actually, this was a, uh, a sort of practice assistant answered how she would uh, go to Sainsbury's, buy cakes at 10 per each and then sell them on, take them to school and send them on for a pound. And I was like, brilliant. You know, I love that. So, and I was, you know, and um, I, I like, it's just because looking purely at academics is helpful and saying, OK, right, OK, well, all right, they got a first from the LSC. OK, great. Well, um, they then did the BCL at Oxford. Well, that's looking, it's looking good. But what you don't want is in a law firm. How can I say this? being, I don't want to be rude, but... You don't want to be, everyone. You do everyone in the same mould. You want different personalities. You want you because because different people approach things in different ways. And I've had situations where I've got a school leaver who's sixteen. I've got someone who went to Cambridge, and I'm like, right, okay, who would I give all my assets to if I was in? If I who would I trust to invest my assets? and get a return, the best possible return. And it was like, easily, the school leaver at 16, because they had commercial nows, and I thought they would look after stuff, whereas, I won't say who this person is, actually a friend of mine, but, you know, the Cambridge guy, I sort of, you know, might, might, might sell all my assets for a load of beans. Um, <laughs> that's nothing against Cambridge at all. Not at
1: all very insightful. I like that a lot. So, would you say like perhaps career changes might capture your attention when you're looking at the
0: cover letter? Yeah, definitely. I want It is a story. Everyone loves a story, don't they? Yeah. And um, so, and I think, but also, I really respect. I know how hard it is to go and do night school, and I mean that is tough. That's really tough. And often people doing that are also holding down a day job. It's just like, you know, and that, in my book, gets a lot of respect. um, As opposed to kids, I'm talking about myself, going to university, um, far more interested in the social scene and um, not, I mean, I didn't knuckle down enough. I really should have done, uh, but there we are. Um, I think there's pros and cons. Pros yeah, cons no, there it. are, but I, I, actually, I actually, I find law academically very interesting, I think. Uh, but anyway, I mean, the great thing about law is you can always sort of fill in the gaps by just reading. You can read cases, you can read texts, you get yeah. a, a wider understanding of stuff that um, you can go deep, you can go really, really deep, The deep dive into something. So, yeah, I think you can always build on your academic knowledge. But, um, but sorry, going back to your question about what how people can stand out, I think they need to just think and analyse. I mean, it depends on every different person. But I think ultimately I don't look at people being you're a lawyer, you're an accountant, you're a cleaner. I don't think like that. I, I'm a great believer in human capital. And someone might be a lawyer, but they can also be a banker, a businessman, a, I don't know, so many different things. And that all gets, you know, and that's what we're looking for, because I want to look at, I'm looking for, when we're really looking to recruit, we are looking for rounders who we think are really going to bring something to the party. So the more that, the more that people can think, oh yeah, okay, what, you know, I've got, what what do I like doing? Um. And it's another thing as well that quite, I, I, you know, I, and this is not to do with alcohol, but I always said, you know, I'm always interested to know whether people like going out and socializing with people. And so when I ask the question, Oh, what do you do in your spare time? No one ever says, I like going to the pub. I'm like, that is where a lot of our business is done because we will go down the pub. People will talk. No, this is drinkers and non-drinkers, but we're in a social place, exchanging ideas, meeting with co-counsel, with council, with councils, clerks, whatever, other solicitors, and that's where work is won. I think that, you know, law students, well, people that I
1: know anyway, they like to do some stuff in their spare time outside of, you know, uni or whatever, studying. And because people are so short on time i think their their spare time interests hobbies or whatever does kind of like sometimes merge with what they do for fun but yeah you're right if you really kind of like draw it back and think what do you do to relax like totally chill out when your mind isn't picking around doing something these hobbies extracurricular activities yeah i mean for most people i guess it is having a drink chatting with your mates whatever else like going out for someone to eat so i i guess when people are just asking interviews uh maybe focus on telling you what what they're doing like what they're active in but you're right if you're asking a question like what do you do in your spare time i think for a of people it probably is having
0: a drink yeah <laughs> but I, well, I suppose what i'm trying to say is that's a good answer um but most people think that'll be a bad answer because then they don't want to give off the, uh, they don't want to come across as being a problem drinker. But it's like, that's not, we're, we're looking for people who are gregarious. So if people say, yeah, I like going out with friends. I like, um, you know, that's great. That's what we want to hear. And I think it's important as well, um, going back to this, and I, going back to one of your previous questions, it's all really about the work life balance. It's important to me that people, I don't want people working at the weekends if they can avoid it. I, I'd much rather they were out, you know, having a picnic in the park. Great. Just keep two metres
1: away from people,
0: from everyone uh, else. <laughs> well, it depends. It might be with their wife.
1: <laughs> so don't I mean, guess I, what the recruiter or the employer wants to hear.
0: Just be yourself. Be yourself. Very much so. And focus on what you think your your you'll put some of the positive points about you and what you might do. One of the things you might do is ask friends of yours what they think about you. <laughs> I mean, that's the question <laughs> I always want. Mean, how would your friends describe you? But actually, do you know what? If I ask a lot of my friends, it would just come back with loads of exclusives In a nice way, I hope.
1: So once, once the people that have impressed you with their CVs have made it through to the interview stage, you know, you've gone through the interview... And at the end, you ask, you know, have you got any questions for me? Have like, what is the um, the best question do you think that you've been asked in a past interview, like that really impressed you? Well,
0: you know what, one of the questions that no one ever asks, and I think I think only one person's ever asked, and it, it's so funny, but it's asked about our what our financial position is and no one ever ever asks that and i find that remarkable because it's like if you're joining a firm don't you want to know and it, I, I don't know whether if people think oh it's being a bit nosy um but one of the things i would be asking is well <clears throat> what were your retained profits last year um you know how much are you reinvesting in the business um what is the scope for um, I've never asked at trainee or pupil stage, for example, or paralegal. Anyone, no one's ever asked me about um, <coughs> partnership prospects. Um, hey,
1: that surprises me.
0: I think they think it's jumping the gun at that stage. You have, obviously, senior associates always ask about it, or nearly always. But I mean, but yeah, so I, I would be wanting to know, well, you invest in contingency fees. What proportion of your uh, cash do you devote to that reinvestment? Um, questions like that. So I think only one person ever asked me that. Um, Did they get the job? They got a job. <laughs> but also as well, you know, what people have to understand is, for me, when I hire someone, that's, you know, it's a two-way street and... In the same way that they are, they can, they go way, hey, you know, we also go great. We've hired someone really good. And that's how, that's how you build a business. Congratulations go both ways, as it were. So, my next question is what are
1: the skills required to make partner and how can junior lawyers start developing these
0: skills? Well, what I have, what I unfortunately sometimes see is very senior lawyers who have worked in massive firms where they have not honed their client skills. And so they just haven't had client contact and developed relationships. And so they come and we go, the first question, if you're a senior lawyer, the first question you're asked is what's your, what's your book of business? What clients do you have? And, um, and people might say, "Look, I, I look, I've got these are the cases I'm working on." What I can tell you is, this is what I introduced last year or last three years, and etc. So, because I, I get that, especially with litigation, it's very hard to predict the future and know what's coming your way. But I think that so the advice I would give to any junior lawyers is think now about how you're going to develop yourselves. As a, a you know, as someone who helps others, persuades them, to instruct them, and to to bring in business, don't think that's the job of the partners. One was the job of the paralegal. Why can't the paralegal bring in, bring in business? Um, you know, don't be confined by what you might see is a junior status. You know, you might you might be the future senior partner. Don't, you know, don't limit yourself, expand your mind, expand yourself at university. You know, the people you're working with now at university, you, you you know, these are people who you are going to potentially be working with in the future. Um, think think about that. I mean, I'm not trying to say you monetize every, your, all your relationships with your friends, but just, I, I work with friends now that I work with previously at university, just because, you know, I might have a criminal matter and I go, oh, I'll do it to my mate who's a criminal barrister. It's not necessarily nepotism, it's just that I know and trust them. I know they'll do a good job, whereas I might go off to some set of chambers and instruct someone that I don't know. Yeah, so really, fo- I think, focus on relationships, Develop, try and develop those relationships. Focus on, when you go into, whether in chambers or whatever, focus on how you can uh, make sure that people know that you're interested in business development and start yourself, come up with ideas, but also then follow through on those ideas and, you know, just sort of, so you might reach out to some council's clerks or go out for a drink with them or for lunch or, um, or it depends, you know, if, it, if I'm in chambers, I'd be like, right, okay, Um, And and I think it's a lot easier actually in chambers marketing to solicitors or commercial litigation because you have this defined category of people you can um, sell your wares to. Um, It's also about connecting, you know, I think people will go to a lecture given by barristers and I think the interesting things start from the conversations you have at the end of the lecture when people are relaxed and where those, are, that's where business is done.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, so are there any headline news stories that future commercial litigators should currently be following and why these especially?
0: Well, there's a new insolvency bill on the horizon. Um, it's a bill. Um, I'm, I have, so I have someone, I was discussing it with someone last week, um, so I haven't got detailed knowledge on it, but it seems to be introducing a new regime that's rather like the Chapter 11 proceedings in uh, in the United States, and which on one construction would effectively be a regime which would bind secured uh, creditors and first fixed-charge lenders. I mean, you might say that sounds a bit dry, but if people aren't going to lend people money because they think, well... I thought I was getting security in the form of a house or a building or whatever. In fact, you're telling me you can wrap that up into something and reduce, and actually um, that, that security gets spread out to other people and my debt's going to be reduced. I won't lend. And um, so I'm very keen on looking at further detail on that because I'm, I think it's going to scare off lenders and bankers and cause a massive liquidity crunch but it might well be that's just because that i that the courts are going to are not going to interpret it in the way that i fear they might um but i'm just surprised the bill at going through parliament hasn't really identified that fear because it could be catastrophic and i suppose if it came in and it was that interpreted that way then Parliament would probably introduce a new bill to amend it i mean there's always that isn't it
1: yeah i think i think this is the um company insolvency and governance bill yeah i've i've heard about this one and um yeah what you're saying does sound right i think there's there's quite a lot of debate around the things that they like trying to implement so it wouldn't surprise me if um, it needed amending straight away. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that's I like definitely one that to
0: look at. The, the damages based uh, agreement legislation is it's the most sloppy piece of legislation um, I've ever seen. And um, <clears throat> there is so much debate about what it actually means. Well, you know, a lot of the cost commentators just think anyone who does a contingency fee arrangement is nuts because they're at such risk that their fee agreement will uh, be proved to be unlawful and then they recover nothing. Um, and I do think, I mean, the, the, the problem is that um, access to justice in this country uh, has been eroded and unfortunately we have a system which suits the rich uh, and penalises the poor. Um, and it's just, if you're poor, you do not have access to justice. Forget it, tough. You know, you will get trampled on. There is no way, you, you can't, you, I mean, legal aid's virtually abolished. What you had before was the ability to at least go to a lawyer and say, will you act on a, um, on a uh, contingency with an uplift? that uplift is no longer recoverable so you've got immediately load of lawyers and say well what's the point i'll just i'm not going to get a bonus if i win so i won't do that you've then got um issues in respect of insurance because any lawyer will say well look if you lose this case you might uh, even you know there's no no is ever 100 percent." and you say to the client well look you could lose and they say, well what okay, fine I've agreed some form of no win no fee with you but you're saying I might lose what what would the other side's legal fees be and I say well you know they've got massive firm who's going to bill three million you might have to pay say 2.5 million and they I go that's I can't do that I can't I can't I'll get wiped out and you say well you can get an insurance premium for that so they've got really they've got a really good case and the insurance premium is going to cost them third of the amount you know seven eight hundred thousand and they can't recover that premium from their opponent. and in the old days the great thing was you could get someone who was a shopkeeper taking on i don't know philip green and they can they that, that shopkeeper can get insurance for their adverse costs and if they lose the insurance sorry if if, if they win the insurance is recovered from the opponents. So what it what it effectively means is they're not risking being wiped out. Um, and this is in a case where someone has looked at their case and thought they've got you know sixty percent chance of success. Offered insurance, and they're getting access to justice. And I think by simply changing the rules back to what they were to say, um, and this is not self serving for me because you know I don't we don't do we don't <laughs> we don't sell insurance policies, but. Um, if you could recover that insurance um, premium, I think that would really facilitate access to justice to a lot of people, uh, especially the smaller smaller people. Um, <clears throat> I mean, smaller, obviously, not in heights, in commercial strength. Very good points. Um,
1: so my next question my next is for you, what, what is a boutique law firm and what type of personality is best suited to such a firm? boutique commercial litigation
0: law firm would you say yes i can't, I can't speak for a corporate a boutique. well so all we do is litigation commercial litigation um <clears throat> i mean someone someone told me anecdotally about I, a firm. i think the pince and masons where they have a um like many other firms a you know you row you come in you don't have your own desk you, where you first come first served and you find a space to sit like going to a library in the old days, um, except normally there you'd have your own sort of area, it's people mind. Um, <laughs> but and so what happens there is you get a real estate lawyer sitting next to a litigator. Uh, I, you know, I love real estate lawyers; great people. Um, I wouldn't. It's not the kind of work that I would want to do. I think it's very different from litigation. And I think. It makes sense to me that you put the litigators with the litigators sitting together. Having said that, thinking about it, actually it might be good to get the corporate lawyers sitting with the litigators as well. So it is probably quite good to move around, but that's, um, but I think you want to create a culture, a litigation culture as well, because there's loads of issues that would affect you, but don't affect real estate lawyers. Um, and I think it's always nice to feel understood. And so I do think it's quite nice about having an environment where you've got a whole bunch of litigators who hang out with each other and, it, and, and basically their experiences rub off against each other. And so they can provide that this emotional support. You know, litigation is nasty business. you are constantly fighting, fighting, fighting with the other side. And sometimes you do just go, oh, you know, I, you know, I just spent you know, after twenty letters going out that day, where everyone's calling each other this, there, and the other. Or, I mean, it's not, it's not like that. But every people are always trying to get one up on each other, and um, and I think it's quite nice when people you have that sort of um, war culture almost where the soldiers like. You know, can relax with each other and share war stories. That's so, a really important. Yeah, so I do think it is. So a boutique, a boutique. I mean, there is this. There is a. There's a culture within a boutique litigation firm which is different to mm. a. Um, to other to a full service firm. The other, the great thing about being a, liti- a boutique is that you know other litigators and other firms we get on very well with because people understand each other you know so like you you at a party you meet someone they're a litigator you're like oh okay and you know they sort of everyone gets it sort of thing so you get on well with litigators you get on well with corporates because you go we don't have a corporate department so the corporate people immediately think oh we can sell stuff to you same with the real estate lawyers and uh, so actually, you speak to other lawyers who think they can sell stuff to you, and then there's other lawyers who understand you. And actually, you know, really, there's a lot of cross-referrals between litigators. So um, I, I think I think it's a really good um, business model. It's not, it wasn't really that uh, intended. We started off with a full-service uh, full law firm and just realized that actually, Litigation is what we were really good at. And that's where we could really make a difference. And for me personally, being a litigator, it's what I understood. Other areas I just I didn't really understand. I wasn't really that interested in.
1: So you worked really hard on something that you know you were really interested in and but and like grew that to become an expert at it.
0: Yeah, and to make sure everyone else is expert at it. So yeah, you know, before we used to have media, non-contentious media lawyers, or real estate lawyers, or corporate lawyers, and I wasn't really interested in in that those areas, you know, and doing that kind of work personally. So it, it just you know it makes it easy for me because i like by just only having litigators, we can just fo- we focus on litigation, and that's something that I know and understand. So I think
1: we've touched on this in other questions. Yeah. Um, yeah. But just to go over it one more time, why is it important for Candy to maintain a close-knit collegiate family atmosphere?
0: I think that people perform best when they feel understood by their colleagues, supported by their colleagues and where they don't have to prove themselves and I think by having a close-knit, collegiate family atmosphere, <coughs> you you get that. And so people can relax, and they don't have anxious thoughts going on in their head about trying to do this or do that. They're not having to deal with politics, disruptive partnership politics, which have been so disruptive for so many firms. And... Um, have caused so many firms to compromise on matters. And because of the compromise, what happens is you just get a, a sort of a crack decision being made about something. But it's cause it's it's just a compromise. So um, yeah, I think I think much better to just have people who are focused on doing the job in hand, not worried about worried about the job in hand and those issues, and not worried about other issues, um, such as, I don't know, job security, um, wanting, you know, whether they're light, uh, feeling insecure in the, in the, um, in the relationship. People should be feel, should, should feel secure and supported. And yeah, look, it's hard because sometimes you sort of, the hardest thing for me is, uh, having ha- had, had, to, to ask to say to people this is this is not working and uh that's the hardest part of the job I ha- and i hate i hate that aspect of it but i sort of when i've had to go into a meeting and um, you know effectively fire someone i know is going to be upset and angst and so what we try and do is manage that process because what we ideally want is for if, if it's not working out for someone it's like right, well, okay. You've learned things here. Take what you've learned. Go somewhere else. Start afresh, and apply that there, so that you've got another chance. And that's what we always try and do is sort of manage people out. So I'm not. It's not all sugar coated candy. Um, it's you know it's a tough. It, it's a tough environment. But because I think we are collegiate, family, and supportive then at least it's it's a real one and it's it's a humane one. Very refreshing.
1: Um, so how does Candy utilise AI technology and what do you think law firms of the future will look like?
0: Well, you know, do robots go on strike? Um, What's that? <laughs> well, I was just thinking about AI, you know, about robots. Um, so... So we use robots to do filing. I think back in the day, you'd have, <clears throat> I was looking at statistics, I think in, in the 1950s or 1960s, being a clerk, a filing clerk, I mean, it was a ridiculous. There's a double-digit percentage of the po- population were filing clerks, just filing papers. That has been, very, that's, technology obviously taken that over. But I think in, in law firms, Certainly, you know, make so you know we use apps so that I can send stuff from my. I send an email from my laptop, my desktop, and it goes, and I can file it in the file in the matter. That's fine, but up until recently, there hasn't been a product that would do that with mobile. Not, not, not a product to my knowledge. And so we take taken a, we took on a new product. I think we were the first to do so in. With their first UK clients anyway, I don't know about internationally, but um, so that we, all our emails from our phones are automatically filed, uh, which is obviously in, incredibly important for compliance. That's how we're using AI at the moment. Where it will change is in terms of, I think, league act. you know, sort of standard stuff where legal products, this is more in the non-contentious world, legal products being provided to um clients very little but i also think those products are just going to give rise potentially to a lot of litigation as well so it depends how controlled and restricted things are in terms of litigation i do think you know paper bu- paper bundles i mean i think they're here to stay for a while the but, I mean, at the moment, you know, all our bundles are electronic now because of COVID. I just like, I'm, I'm old school. I like a book, you know. So I like, I mean, you know, and also because I think it can, it's not that like good for your brain staying at a computer for 15 hours a day. I prefer to read off manuscripts if I can, but obviously it's not good for the environment printing off so much paper. But I think AI will automate stuff, but it will also make a lot of mistakes so um but certainly disclosure as well um although i just don't trust it because i think people will cotton on to that and use codes code words to communicate stuff with and in code and they'll be plotting say a conspiracy and i don't think a robot will pick up on that because they'll do keyword searches just won't bring anything up
1: yeah,
0: it sounds like it would be, be difficult to control that. Yeah, but I mean that. I mean, you know, AI is being in, in is massively uh, key to um, disclosure. But it will develop. I mean, it will develop, and it becomes. You know, things always do, don't they? They always develop, become more sophisticated. Um, but I think you know, generally with AI, it's gonna. It's, it is revolutionising the way we do everything.
1: Yes, as you said earlier, once upon a time you're writing letters and getting one back a week later. But you know now you're getting twenty five emails a day from that one person. Now there's pros and in that. It
0: was lovely. It was so nice. <laughs> you know, I, you'd go into work, you'd go home in the evenings, and that was it until you went back into work. I mean, I think in my, I mean, I, I did some all nighters in my training contracts on, on corporate deals. Well, you're up, you're up for days on end without sleep. And that's just nonsense in my mind. That's just asking for trouble. I never, I never get that. You know, it's just, go home. Everyone should go home and sleep and come back and carry on. But um, and that's just, it makes it boring as well. It's like, I want a life. I don't want to be three days without sleep. You know, I start getting mad. And it's not good. It's not good as well for, you know, people make mistakes. It's not healthy.
1: Do you find the younger... Um, younger lawyers are the ones pulling all nighters, and the the older ones have kind of gone through it, realize it's it's not that beneficial, and have stopped doing it.
0: Is there is there know, a kind that, of trend? That, that, I, I can't say now. I think you'd have to ask um, you'd have to ask someone who's in the corporate because it's very much a corporate thing. Um, in litigation, I think it's easier to manage, but it is. I mean, it, it's hard and you know, the last thing you want is your advocate not going to bed before a, a hearing or a trial. It's like crazy. So like, no, stop, stop, go relax, chill. But I do, um, I think that, well, I knew that, I, it was back in about 1998, so I remember I went to a, uh, I did an all-nighter at Simmons & Simmons. And the corporate partner there, he was great head, and he was up all night. And he was doing two deals at the same time. I just thought I looked at that and I thought I don't aspire to that position. They want that. I don't want the lifestyle. Yeah, so I was just really put off by that. Yeah, it, it looks it looks hard work. And not that interesting or fulfilling. I mean that's what we all want, isn't it? I mean what we want is that something something that, you know, financially rewarding so we can pay the bills, but is a fulfilling, interesting job. And Unfortunately, people get sucked into huge eye-watering salaries, some of the firms, and they, go, and they go, I hate my job. I absolutely hate it. But I've got a mortgage. I've got kids in private school. I've got, I'm stuck. I'm a prisoner. And I think um, that's why I think it's really important to treat, really try and hone in on what interests you. Because um, like that old adage, you know, um, do a job you love and never work a day in your life. That's really what you want. You're not working. <laughs>
1: yeah, I agree with you. I think that you have to really understand yourself to know what it is like that you want and and realise that it's not just all about the career. Because I understand that it takes such a lot of hard work to make it into these positions in corporate law and commercial. So... I can understand how people do get very much wrapped up into it and, and make it their whole life, but it's just as important to have a life on the outside. So you can dedicate good, you know, work when you are in work, I think, anyway.
0: I, I totally agree. And I also think that the worst thing to do is sacrifice your life for something. I mean, let's face it, you know, ultimately in a lot of firms, you are, you are a column in a spreadsheet. I mean, you know, in loads of firms, that's exactly what you are. And if suddenly you don't perform, you know, they'll be going, right, let's cut, cut these, these people aren't performing. And I think that if what you've done to get there is really to sacrifice your life, it can be really soul destroying than to be told that you're being made redundant and or that you're not wanted. So choose, I think people need to choose their firms very carefully, find out about the culture, find out about what's expected of them, the extent to which the firms that are applying to support a work-life balance. A lot of firms say they're collegiate, but they don't don't know what that means. And I, I hear stories from friends who are at other firms just I mean, one firm, for example, they had a hiring freeze. They've got a hiring freeze on paralegals during lockdown. And he, he said to me, he said, we really need the support. But the, a decision has been made in the States. And that's, that's that. And meanwhile, we're suffering because of that. And I'm just like, this is bonkers. Why would you, why would you say we're going to freeze, have a hiring freeze on paralegals? isn't the question to look at what the business needs what the law firm requires and then make the decision
1: you
0: would think policies that are inapplicable to the client's needs the individual's needs but i think that you get that unfortunately in larger organisations where the finances are driving everything and i understand that look we're all we're all at the end of the day we all we're all in business and a law firm is a business it's there to make money but we and so the financials are crucial But there's a better way of getting there and so I think if you have the right ingredients you help and support each other you focus on getting a team result for the clients make sure that everyone is properly supported those who are Managing it, and those who are not managing it, because you can manage. You can manage from 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 the bottom up. Um, the person in charge isn't always the most senior person on the team. It might be the person who everyone sees as the the, the effective leader, and that could be someone who's junior. Um, but you do all that, and that's how you get you know, the financials will come. Very interesting.
1: So you mentioned before um, about when you look. For people to hire, when you're looking for people to join your team, you you want um, like different people um, from different backgrounds. What more can um, do you think can be done to achieve greater diversity in law firms in general?
0: I mean, I do wonder whether um, CVs uh, you could have, you should have something where. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean where people's names aren't put there. I mean, you know, if you're talking about racism, I wonder whether if people are, whether there's any ethnic screening. Um, I'd be really interested to know the stats on that. I mean, uh, from, you know, I mean, ironically, from our perspective, um, you know, we, we don't discriminate at all, but if someone is, you know, got a... Foreign background, that to us is, oh, right, okay, so you speak a different language, that's you immediately are, that's a bonus because, right, okay, so you can build trust within, uh, with another international country. Um, you know, you've got those language skills that, uh, that other people don't have. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think perhaps um, a lot of that is, about ethnic diversity is, is is more is also part of the the um, society changing and I mean we are a very multicultural society I think and obviously um, the whole Black Lives Matters campaign is uh, is playing a prominent part in hopefully changing people's attitudes but. Unfortunately, I mean, I do think that, um, not in the UK, but I think in other countries, there is institutional racism. I mean, you know, fortunately it just is, obvious, why there's so many blacks in prison in, in the United States. Um, most of them on marijuana charges, where, you know, it's just, it's just ridiculous. Um, and that of itself, I think, is the reason for liberalising the marijuana laws. Um, which have done in, in 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 a lot of the states but not others um but i think it's bizarre how in California it's legal to smoke weed yet you've got millions of black people incarcerated for in the united states and anyway that was always just a pretext often to bang them up but anyway i'm i'm slightly going off on a uh, on a tangent there i do think Coming back to your question, um, it's crucial to put in place strategies that allow, and it is women, um, to have children and continue after maternity leave in a supportive environment. And until you uh, have guaranteed rights for women to return on a part-time basis, then you're going to achieve that. Now we voluntarily guarantee that. And I, I and uh so all women uh, should have that right. And um it's about just trying to make it work and it's gonna be hard, but I think if you have a strategy in place, I mean it's the only it's the only answer I can think of. I don't I can't think of any other one. I mean I think what well, you've got the so allowing flexible working, guaranteeing uh you know. Being present part time in the office, and actually, you've got to be. I mean, look, if you, I, I know how it works. If you have children, it is you cannot work full time unless you know you never see them. You never you wouldn't see them because normally, if you've got to be in the office, that I mean, I said you might be able to drop them at school, but some people like to see people that work at half eight, so they'll have the nanny will take them to school, the nanny will pick up the kids. And then they get back after the children have gone to bed.
1: Yeah. I mean, so, if you work in London and live outside of London, you're talking about an hour commute, right? And that's on a good day. So if you start work at nine, you need to be there just before. So you're turning on the computer at nine. You've got to leave at like, I don't know, half seven. There we are.
0: There we are.
1: And you don't get home until, well, gone six o'clock because who has an easy train journey home?
0: listen i don't know Makes anyone hours law, to get on the tube i don't know anyone in a law firm you know who leaves work at 5 i mean now unless they they are part of a flex flexible working practice i mean we we we've had situations where with single mothers and uh, we've said fine well you know what can you what do you want to do you tell us what you want to do and do it that way, they go, Well, this is how I want to work. I want to be able to do this and do that. And come at that time, we go, fine. Right? Well let's 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 at least try it. Um, and it is it is it is hard though. I think especially if you're a single parent, it's very hard. because um, we've had people who sort of will spend between five and nine with their family and then log in at nine o'clock after the kids have gone to sleep. And it's like, well, there's not much of a not much of a life then. Just servitude. <laughs> I mean,
1: it sounds incredibly difficult for people that are, you know, working really nine to five, looking after kids, and then logging on at nine o'clock to work as well. But I can understand how it must be difficult for the employer as well, because people are you know, sending emails at nine o'clock at night, trying to get stuff moving, you're not going to really get a response back, are you?
0: Yeah, I don't mind that. I I actually don't mind that, because I think a lot of time, uh, unfortunately, you know, we're always interrupted. You know, email's coming through all the time. You're focusing on one thing, and, you know, somebody else will catch your eye uh, repeatedly. And actually, it's quite good to have some time just to focus on something, get through stuff, get it delivered and then people can respond the next day. But I think that works fine, but I do think it is tough. You know, I do think it is tough. And I think, um, I mean, but that was driven very much by what that person wanted. I personally, would have, and they worked four days a week. I would have said, look, why don't you, you know, work part time and work more from home. And I think, I do think this, the lockdown, the one thing that lockdown has really liberated especially for uh, single parent families, is the ability to it's just a little bit easier, not with the kids at home schooling. So that aside, imagine they were in school, is to be able to work from home. I, I do think um, and I know many companies are going to be um, are happy to have that flexible working. Um, at the same time, I hope you don't go to the opposite where we say, we don't need an office anymore because you do very much need a central point where people come together, particularly for people at the start of their careers. Because the way I learned, the best way I learned was listening to my boss, listening to what he did on the phone, how he handled situations, going into meetings. I mean, that's how you learn as a solicitor, I think, or um, I think the same for, the pupils you know so much of it is by observing uh other barristers and their leaders um yeah getting that real work experience yeah what's your proudest achievement it's funny probably not what you imagine actually i think uh my proudest achievement for me personally is to lose the case and for it not to affect me emotionally because I think that uh, you know psychologists will tell you that the buzz of winning a million pounds great mm. the buzz of losing a million or the <laughs> the, um, the loss of a million pounds can have a great weight on people and that in comparison is far greater, it's, it's far more extreme that people feel the soft, a loss far uh, in a disproportionate way that they would feel a win. And I think being able to... Because it's like getting a parking ticket. No one likes a parking ticket. And they'll go, oh, 50 quid. Well, that, you know, I could have had a nice lunch with that, without wine. But uh, I, I think... And so... To, to think of a, a big loss on that on that level can, uh, can can really make people feel really upset and lose their direction. But I think um, for me anyway, I've always been a big risk taker, and we take risks. I'm talking about situations where we litigate for the firm, where effectively the firm is the client, and we can't win everything. There are you know, and we take big risks. And if we lose, I think the ability not to be disheartened, the ability not to let that affect your appetite for risk, the ability to get up and, you know, and fight on, and the ability to still not even let it affect your time with your children or anything, just to say, and to understand and emotionally compartmentalise that, to say, okay, well, you win some, you lose some, that is for me makes me uh, proud of myself
1: so that you have to be very strong to do that
0: well I think you've got to be considered you've got to think about it you've got to really think about it and um, you know uh, and it, it's rather I, I think it comes back to um, understanding yourself so if you're offered a you might be you're in litigation for, let's say you're in litigation for one million pounds, and someone offers you 100,000 pounds to settle. And it might be the nine people out of 10 would say, "I'll just take the 100 grand." I don't you know." Whereas you go, "No,, I don't want it. I'm not interested in it." And you sort of work out, because of your nature of the person, you were always going to go for the million. you were always going to take that risk. And that's just you. That's just the type of person you are. And if you understand that, having considered that, then actually you're like, well, it was always going to be that way. Interesting.
1: Very interesting. So next question is, what are your favourite ways to keep up to date with current affairs?
0: Well, watching the news or watching the BBC or reading the Times. I, yes, try, you
1: know. and, um, I try and read the Times every day in the morning from my app but sometimes it can get a little bit too much right so i try and do um the weekly roundup which is quite helpful
0: yeah i mean um i think the trouble i mean i you know the app's great sometimes you find yourself just whizzing through so much stuff yeah and i think that can be like i just whizzed through that i was like massive I don't. I think. I think. I. I prefer. I do like. If I have time, I do prefer to sit down and actually read through a paper. But
1: you know, it's easier to read off of a newspaper than to stare at a screen. Much easier, yeah. I, I think, for your eyes to follow. Yeah. When you're reading through a newspaper, are you are you looking for like particular stories that you follow, or do you try and read all of it? No,
0: I I won't read all of it. You're right. I mean, I'm more interested in international affairs as well. So. I mean, there's some stuff that, you know, that some people are interested in, other people aren't interested, right? Some people, they go straight to the sports page. Other people, uh, you know, are more interested in domestic news, what's going on in their area. I just, th- I, I, I sort of feel that we all have a responsibility to try and shape what goes on in the world. And, to, and the best way we do that is by saying what we think. It might not necessarily be by leading, you know, starting a new political party, but if there's by calling out when things are right and wrong, and saying no, that's not right, and calling that out. And I think that um, you know, if junior lawyers can't do that, you know, what help do uh, does the rest of society have when you know, effectively, we're meant to be the advocates within society, whether oral or written advocates. I do think um it's important that everyone uh is aware and takes responsibility for things that go on in the world.
1: So what advice would you give to your um to yourself at the beginning of your career?
0: I mean I think I've probably been through all it all, but I'll summarizing it in trust your instincts, be real. If you think something, I think you should say it. And I think you shouldn't feel that you can't speak up in an environment. So you need to take risks. Don't don't be safe. Don't just be safe all the time because that that sometimes is the biggest risk by not taking risks. Suddenly, you're in a position you're made redundant. Um, but uh, I'd say be yourself and be kind. But also, don't lose your sense of humour. That is sometimes the thing that will keep you in best stead in a hot spot, but most of all, really try and fo- focus on well being because, um, it's really important that you're resilient. It's the best, I think, is the you know, the best skill. I don't know, is it a skill most, but you know, so it's sort of the thing that you can really that can best protect you. Is uh resilience, emotional resilience.
1: Yeah, to keep your brain going and, and working hard to the best that you can, you need to look after yourself and make sure there's a shield there to protect you from all the horrible things going on in the world.
0: Yeah, and there is a lot of there's a lot of bad stuff going on. And um We're not robots. We've got apps. We're that not robots, kind of we are not robots.
1: <laughs> Thank the Lord. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think you've like you've provided so much valuable advice. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for joining us here today.
0: Well, thank you for the invitation. So, and I hope I hope there's some good tip bits that will um, make people think and will give them that strength and from which they can build confidence in their in their careers going forwards. I'm sure there's so much. I think this episode is absolutely jam packed with that. Okay, all right. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much.
1: To hear more of the Student Lawyers podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. We'd like to thank Felix Knight for producing this podcast today.